I could do all this work on my own. I could isolate myself from bars, restaurants, events. But when I tried to integrate back into those spaces as a sober person, everything fell away because I didn't, I didn't feel accepted. I didn't have a reason. I didn't want to talk to people about why I wasn't drinking. I just didn't want to deal with it. Staying motivated takes work. If you don't work on your motivation, you become unmotivated. Join Umar Jang as he shares inspirational stories and tips to get you motivated to do whatever you need to do. This is the Motivational Voice Podcast. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Motivational Voice Podcast. This is session number 52. I hope you are doing well. I was away for a little while from the podcast due to an injury. In July, I was playing soccer and tore my Achilles tendon right off. (laughs) My son was making a joke about, he was saying, Dad, you are at that age where you are going to start to hurt yourself. (laughs) And uh, he said it as a joke, but I'm certainly not in my 20s anymore. So that took me out of commission for a long while. I am still on the mend, but I'm back and I'm excited to be here. And we have some interesting stuff coming up for you on the podcast. This was just one of many, many things that happened in the past six to eight months. Some good, some bad. And these events forced me to take a break from things and get things back in balance before moving forward and so that I can serve you better. But that's life, right? One of the reasons why I started the podcast was to find ways to cope with things like this and to be able to move forward without stopping. By the way, this is a great segue for what we will be talking about in today's episode. Sometimes our struggles, whether they are past or present, can lead us to a direction that single-handedly redefines what our path is. This path, or call it purpose or, or faith or whatever you want to call it, may not always be obvious to us until we realize that the lessons we learned from those struggles can benefit others as much as, if not more, then it benefited us and make other people's lives better. And that was certainly the case for our guest today, Jen Gilhoy, who in her journey to becoming sober, found out that she had essentially sparked a movement that is very much needed in today's world, where drinking alcohol is way too normalized, if you ask me. Now you will shortly hear from Jen, and in our conversation, We talk about her personal story, but also how she managed to get on the TEDx stage. For those who don't know, the TEDx stage is a space where you can go and give speeches. And those speeches can get millions and millions of views when they are put on the internet on on the TED YouTube channel. And it allows for other people to discover your message. So if you Google TEDx or search for, for TED, you will find a lot of wonderful speeches that were given in the past that a lot of people follow because they provide an insightful view of life or on a specific topic that can literally change someone's life. In today's episode, we talk about this because there are many people out there who have amazing stories, personal stories that could inspire millions of people, and they just need a platform to be able to do that. So without further ado, let's meet Jen. Well, Jen, welcome to the podcast. Happy to be here. Yes. It's good to have you. It's uh, 
good to see you on 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 the podcast because and we're going to talk a little bit about this because you and I have something in common which is well we got on the TEDx stage which is uh, something that we'll actually talk about so but before we go into 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 that topic do you want to take a second and just introduce yourself to our listeners and tell them who you are and, and what you do Sure. Yeah. I'm Jen Gilhoy, and I've been an entrepreneur for 10 years. I have a business called Spark Track, and it's all about marketing, communications, and events. And I also launched a personal brand just at jengilhoy.com about a year and a half ago. And that connects directly to my sober journey, which I've been on for over eight years now. And I started really being vocal about the need to have more non-alcoholic options in our social spaces. And when I started talking about that, I found that a lot of people um, in LinkedIn in in particular, when I shared it there, were concerned about the corporate spaces they were in and being around alcohol when they didn't want to be. So it kind of had this life of its own. And from that, I developed, along with my co-founder, Kate Faulkner, Zero Proof Collective, which we launched in May of 2022. So I have three businesses going at the moment, and they're all connected, which is really cool. And um, yeah, and we can talk about the whole TEDx fit into all of that. But for sure, it was, um, you know, I'm, I'm 50. I turned 50 last year. And it was like this convergence of many different passions that led me to the stage. Yeah, congrats. Happy belated birthday. I'm turning 50. Oh, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> so three businesses, like where do you find the time to do all of that? That's that's a lot <laughs> to, shop, to to juggle. Yeah, you know, it's interesting that I do break it down to percentages. And what I love is that each one of those three businesses is getting hyper focused right now. So in the beginning with SparkTrack, I was very broadly marketing and communications. And now because I have three businesses, I am focusing that on events. And then my you know personal brand has a direction, which is really the launch of that now I feel is like the TED Talk, right? So that's like the whole platform for what I want to do with my personal vision. Um, and then Zero Proof Collective is a community. So they're like all serving these really interesting um, you know, passions of mine, and they all come together, like all three of them intersect in a really amazing way that I mean, 10 years on the beginning of my sober journey, never would have thought that possible. Like, my life has absolutely been transformed because of making better choices for my life. Yeah, I like this idea of, of sober. And, and I, I did have a chance to 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 see or talk, to listen to you speak. And one of the things I think one of the challenges that a lot of people face is is and I, I it's funny I remember I think it was in January people were having a you know sober I think they call it sober January or something like that. Dry January, Dry yeah, January, right? that's the term. And and I don't drink. I've never. I don't drink. I don't smoke. I don't do anything. <laughs> so it makes me sound boring. <laughs> but I've situations where, to, yeah, to your point, you're in a corporate space, there's an event, and then people are drinking alcohol, and you you, you don't drink, right? So so what do you do when, when that happens? Yeah, I think that is such an ongoing question for me. And in my TED Talk, I share my personal story of being in marketing and events. And when you're the planning and you're the host of those, and you put alcohol at the center, 
it is really hard to uncouple alcohol from all of those corporate activities. And I think people in those spaces haven't felt empowered to speak up or they just kind of go with the norm because it is really challenging to tell your employer or anyone in those spaces that you'd like something different. You don't know what it looks like because it's so pervasive. It's so ingrained. So I want to be able to have people start asking the questions if they do want to be in different environments and how do we create those? How do we have the conversations? Because I do think, you know, with dry January, that's 10 years, January of 2023, that that has been an, you know, annual thing. And the tipping point is now corporations are really concerned with well-being. They have been for a very long time, but they haven't really tapped into what it looks like to have a culture that is alcohol-free or allows people to make better choices. And then from that, you look at the productivity levels and the legal liability and responsibility that corporations are taking on when they host these gatherings that encourage alcohol. So there's just a lot of um, angles I believe we can go at in the corporate space, especially for companies that do truly say they want to put their employees' well-being at the center. Yeah, I wanted to also touch on, so what was the 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 reason behind you starting or wanting to get on the TED stage? Was there yes. something that encouraged you to do it or what was the reason behind that? Yeah, I think I had been sharing my sober story pretty vocally for several years. And I think when you put that into the world, like I didn't know what I wanted to do with it. I just knew that when I was trying to get sober, I had no models of anyone, any like women in my company. I was at a company of 350 people and I didn't know one single person who was sober. And I thought we have to start openly modeling this for other people so that they see what's possible. And so just by putting that out in the world, like we do with ideas and dreams and visions, there is a reaction. The universe does say back to you. Okay. So in this case, um, a friend of mine knew my story and knew that TEDxEDINA had said applications are opening up in January. And I can hardly believe that I'm saying this, but I I had no hesitation. I'm like, yep, I'm doing that. Like I barely thought about any of the stuff that comes after. I just knew that um, the timing felt right. And I, I had enough trust in myself that I would figure out the rest of it. Have you had experience in the past speaking or is this something that you, you've always dream, dreamt of doing? I would say my past speaking has really been from the event perspective. I love to gather panels together and choose speakers that are going to make for a great conversation. I've moderated panels. I've done, you know, presenting to clients. I'm very comfortable with that. So if you look at like all the angles of interaction and presentation that I've done, I feel pretty comfortable in that space, but I never set out to have kind of like the the public speaking um, be at the forte of my resume or what I'd be doing. So it just kind of naturally evolved, I think, because of the conversation element that I love and building community. Can you touch a little bit on your journey, what you went through and why you wanted to be sober and what mm-hmm. uh, what those motivations were for you? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, I, I, the term alcoholic is what most people are trying to decide. Am I an alcoholic or not? And 
I think 10 years ago, that was the conversation. And for 20 years, I knew that I had an issue with alcohol. I used it to cope. I used it to unwind. But the behavior around it looked very confusing to me because I also was in corporate America. I showed up to my job. I could work out and do all the things. And so I, for a very long time, didn't want to address that it was a problem. I thought I was, I thought I had it in control. And that went on for, you know, college and throughout my early career. Before I think it reaches a tipping point for most people where it just becomes unmanageable. And one of the AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, whole foundational ideas is, you know, our lives had become unmanageable. And at that point at age 40, that's what I was faced with. Like everything just kind of spiraled and caught up with me. And you can only do that for so long. So my motivation um, to stop drinking was I had tried to control it many, many times in the past, you know, abstaining for you know, when I was pregnant with both children for nine and a half months, no alcohol. Like, how how did I do that? Well, I knew there was an end point where I would be able to then start again. A lot of reasons, but it never worked for me to control it. And therefore, more recently, I've come around um, loving the whole spectrum of how people define their relationship with alcohol. So I don't like to say I'm an alcoholic because I feel like that there's a lot of stigma and shame around that. So rather I say, I'm sober necessary, which just means I really need to be sober. I don't have an option. And there are people in between. And that's why I love your story as well. Like you just, you don't have that vice. You maybe didn't grow up around it. You, you know, there's different reasons that people come to be alcohol free. And that is what's exciting right now is because all those reasons are acceptable. You don't have to be a problem drinker to be someone who chooses not to drink. You can have it be part of your culture. You can have it be related to your health and wellness. So I think that to me feels uh, much more accepting and open of reasons people come to not drink. Was there something specific that that maybe nudged you towards being like, oh my God, I have to get sober? Was it, did it, was it, did it affect your relationship or was there? A, oh, a, everything. Everything. And there were several points. Like when I thought, you know, what are my options here? Do I go to treatment? Um, can I still keep my job while trying to not drink? I had, you know, several mornings after, let's say, where I was just completely frustrated and devastated because it does, it just takes control of you. And I felt like I had control in all other areas of my life, supposedly, but that eventually became so unmanageable. So there, there was um, one day, like the my very first day of like continuous sobriety is July 28th, 2014. So that is the day, you know, everything leading up to that point was trying to figure out what that relationship looked like. And I did have a couple relapses. And that is, again, the point of my talk is that I could do all this work on my own. I could isolate myself from bars, restaurants, events. But when I tried to integrate back into those spaces as a sober person, everything fell away because I didn't, I didn't feel accepted. I didn't have a reason. I didn't want to talk to people about why I wasn't drinking. I just didn't want to deal with it. So I think that environmental, I call that kind of the third pillar of becoming sober is that you need to have 
figure out your social settings and spaces so that that doesn't blindside you and you can continue on if you choose to be sober. I had a, in a past episode, I had a, a judge, a judge, Sean Florky, who is a judge that kind of, when someone, you know, uses substances and ends up in trouble with the law, he would be the one that would actually sentence them to mm. maybe jail or whatever the sentence was. And one of the things that he brought up, which was poignant, was that people, just because people have, have a, you know, a drinking problem or a, you know, substance issue, uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're they're not human, that they're not there, they don't have those feelings, and 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 they're valid, and they're valid members of society. But unfortunately, people I think tend to 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 uh, start to look at you differently, and and even though I mean, look at you, you've been sober for a long time, and you're giving back to society. You have companies, you know, you gave a wonderful TED TEDx talk that others are learning from. So I think that's, uh, I was just kind of trying to tie that to what you said in terms of how important it is to not look down at people and actually, if anything, try yes. to help when you can. Yes, to have empathy. And I think something else that I had in my talk that I pulled out because I couldn't go deep enough was this idea of hitting rock bottom. Like people want to know, did, were you in a car crash? Did you end up in jail? Did you have mm. these devastating life con consequences? And I mean, you could say that I didn't because I, I mean, I just... It just was affecting my family and my health. And those reasons to me were devastating enough, but it it wasn't like society was saying, you know, we're taking away your driver's license. Like all of those really public things that can happen to people that everyone has like, I think asked me or wanted to know. And I'm like, no, it just was, my life was absolutely unmanageable. I was really miserable. And so that can be enough. Like you don't have to hit the proverbial horrible rock bottom, you can change, um, you know, your ideas around wanting to be sober at any time. And for any reason, I always tell people that <laughs> don't wait, don't wait to start figuring it out. I mean, I waited 20 years. So yeah, yeah, yeah. that motivation can be different for different people. You know, so for some people, you wake up in a bathroom floor in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. And you don't know how you yeah. got there. It's, it's scary. It's so scary. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I wanted to, uh, thanks for sharing that. I appreciate you doing mm -hmm. that. I know it's sometimes those can be difficult things to share, but thanks for doing that. Uh, I wanted to shift to to the TEDx portion of the of the of this interview, which is so if someone out there has an idea and they want to to maybe get on the TEDx stage or they feel like they this is an idea that could change someone else's life. That's uh, as they say in TED TEDx, wolf spreading. Where do they start? How do you go from, hmm, it would be nice to give a TEDx talk to being on stage? Yeah, I think one of the biggest things I landed on was the idea of your own lived experience. So anyone could read a book, find out, you know, research and pull things together and be an excellent speaker. But again, this is what drove me to keep going, knowing that I didn't have like a public speaking credential was that I had a lived experience worth sharing. And that is where I think any of the ideas for the amazing TEDx speakers, you know, there are 13,000 talks now, uh, TEDx internationally, um, that all comes from lived experience. And that has to be there if, um, you know, that passion is going to come through as a story and a compelling reason for people to listen to your idea. 
Right. So unlike what what some people think, it's not necessarily the experts and the gurus that that are selected to give these talks. It's really looking for someone who's genuine, someone who has a story to share that can make a difference, uh, an idea worth spreading, uh, so to speak, to actually get them on, on the TEDx stage. Talk, talk to me about, well, maybe we can use you as your, your, use your example, which is when you had the idea to give your talk, what are some of the things that you had to do uh, first and foremost? Mm-hmm. Well, I was first of all thinking about who else has done a talk? in the sober space. So I did research, do your research. I found that most of the TEDx talks around alcoholism were about personal stories, overcoming alcohol, gray area drinking, um, the science behind addiction. So there were all these things that had already kind of been out in the universe. And I just said, why, why is my idea different? Why is it relevant at this point in time? So some of those speakers that gave talks, um, there's one on gray area drinking, Jolene Parks, Pioneer, um, you know, years ago. So it's like that's still relevant and that content's still out there. And what I wanted to do was bring the context of what is happening in 2022, which, you know, layer on the effects of drinking and the pandemic. And then the other convergence is we have amazing non-alcoholic options because, People went inward. They got creative and they made amazing non-alcoholic products, which we've never had before. So it actually was a convergence, I felt, of the timing to not only be seen in our social spaces, but actually have celebratory options that could make it all feel inclusive. And four years ago, you know, we were drinking old duels and Red Bull and having soda. Like the options were just very limited. So that was something I paid attention to. Um, and I recognized and I moved that into my idea worth spreading, which made it unique and different from what was already out there. Right. So it's finding that that different angle of looking at that particular topic and adding your own spin and making it unique. So I, so there's that. And uh, is, is and there's an application process. And how does that normally go? Yeah. So, I, you know, what I have found is with each different TEDx organizer, which are communities across the world that are licensed to take the TEDx concept and implement it, their way of going about it, I think is very, it can be very different. So I know for TEDx Edina, the process that we went through, the application was a lot of, um, you know, Q&A and longer form answers to some of the questions. Um, And I'd love to hear your experience with that too. But I I felt like I had already written so much of that and had it in my head. The application process for me took a couple hours. And I know from talking with other speakers, it took a very long time because they were kind of formulating their idea from the beginning, whereas I had been thinking about it just and writing about it for you know almost two years at that point. So it felt like the natural progression from writing to actually speaking um, for me made the application process pretty straightforward. Yeah, and I think for me, you're right, good point. I think for me, the probably the most challenging thing in the process was narrowing the idea down enough that it's it's one idea, right? That you can yeah. talk Oh, about. yes. <laughs> After you go through the application process, and yeah, to your point, different TEDx will have a website, right? So that people can go to and look for 
you know, when it is, you know, how to apply. Uh, but yeah, it's a very straightforward form that you fill out online. Then what comes next after the application? And this I know may vary. This for TEDx Edina that, that you did. Yes, I think in general, a lot of waiting. So to remember that a lot of these TEDx organizations are volunteers. And so I remember submitting, like I submitted mine two weeks early, even before the deadline, which is crazy. Cause I mean, who does that? But um, I couldn't wait. I was so excited. And so it was months actually of waiting while they reviewed the applications. And then I think it was maybe two and a half months um, before they then gave a call. And, and as you know, there was then like another, right? month before we actually created a mini audition of three minutes. And I think the application in the TEDxEDINA case was 160 some applicants narrowed down to 40 some for the three minute audition. So to give you an idea, that was January, end of January, applications due. And then I think it was maybe third week of April when the auditions came. So there's there's time built into that process, which I also want to talk about because I think Everything from start to finish, what, um, about 10, 11 months seemed to be like a normal progression of that. Um, and there's reasons for that. There's editing. There's, you know, thoughts that you have to keep coming back to and refining, which let's talk about that because that was grueling for me. Yeah, I know part of our, our cohort, some of us had longer talks than others. Uh, I, I managed to kind of shrink my talk down to <laughs> 13 minutes and and uh, consistently got it between 12 and 13 minutes. But some of us had longer talks, like 20 minutes. And had to yes. Yeah, who was that? That was me. Yes. And I was panicked about it because I had finally went through it and honed all the content. And then I didn't want to start memorizing too early and figuring out the cadence. So like some speakers for TEDx would be like around 130 words a minute and others would speed up and your cadence can change. But I definitely had to cut several sections. And then I worked with a former TEDx speaker who um, really encouraged me mostly to take out the things that were that required me to go too deep that I just wouldn't have the time to do justice to. So there were several pieces that I had to just take out completely that were just painful, but it made the whole talk stronger because you do have to go really into the personal story and in depth. And if you're just skimming the top level and providing, you know, research and top level things, people walk away confused with no thread, no call to action, which is also part of the TED kind of hierarchy of the talk is you do want to end with some sort of actionable thing and way that you can spread the idea that you just shared. Yeah, there's a couple of things there that you talked about that I wanted to maybe touch on a little deeper, which is you talked about working with someone and you talked about also the having a story to tell, right? Focusing mm -hmm. on that, that story. So why was it important for you to work with someone to, to get help, essentially? Yes, I think that, was, oh, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this too, but I waited to find that person. I put it kind of out into the world in my network, like in June, and I didn't find that person until the end of August because I knew I wanted someone who had some sort of lived experience, had done a TED Talk, had 
um, experience some of the the sober kind of this challenges in navigating spaces that are centralized around alcohol. And the woman I found was a connection from, you know, decades ago. And her husband happened to be eight years sober, sober necessary, sober by choice. And she also, she was um, a TEDx speaker. And so I really lean into her because I just wanted kind of one person to kind of guide me through those edits versus I know there's been part of other TEDx processes where you can kind of crowdsource, put your idea to like out to 20 people. And then you get all this feedback that you feel obligated to do something with, but ultimately it can be a waste of energy. Like it, for me, it really was like, can I find that one person to fully deeply know what I want to do with this and be that inspirational person to say, keep going you're almost there because there were times in the editing process where I just thought, oh my gosh, like, what have I got myself into? How do I do this? How am I going to be appealing to the masses, tell my story and not offend anyone? I mean, there's a lot of things that go through your head about what the expectations are. So she really helped me through that. It was amazing. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I think I had the benefit of, of when I decided I wanted to do this, I had the benefit of of working with a actually a TEDx coach who very similar to your 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 story it helped to actually shift you don't know what you don't know I mean I I, I do public speaking so I'm very good on stage but this is a whole different ball game it's a completely different how you approach the speech writing the storytelling how much of what you tell and how you present it to people. So yeah, it was essentially mm-hmm. crucial for me to have had that help from a from a coach uh, to actually who was an expert who had given TED talks herself and has helped out a lot of people pitch to TED and TEDx, and that was really helpful, and really inciting. And I thought I knew a lot about public speaking until I worked with her mm. and realized that oh, I would have done that completely wrong had I not had that. <laughs> So, so absolutely. Yes. Same experience. You just don't, you don't know. And ultimately what I found in that process is I didn't have to worry as much about the masses when I focused in on my story and a very singular idea, which helped, which helped quite a lot. Right. Exactly. Yeah. It's a lot simpler to, to dig deeper on one idea, one thought than to, even in life, practical life, if you're trying to remember trying to help three people at the same time, you're going to drop the ball as opposed to if you focus on one person, one thought, right? Yeah. So we talked about the getting help and we talked about a little bit about story. How crucial is a story, telling a story as part of your TEDx talk? I actually thought it was the essence. Like working with my TEDx coach, she pushed me to go further, deeper, and be more authentic. My first draft kind of glossed over the fact that I was in recovery. I mean, it mentioned it. I would touch on it. And I told myself, oh, I don't have room for that. People will, they'll get that. Uh, Mm. No, that, and the way that um, there's like the hierarchy of a TED Talk, at least the document and the people before me that I followed um, your personal stories, you know, woven throughout, but they're in like almost a third of the way in is when you go to that lived experience. So you kind of set up the idea, you talk about what you want to see change, and then you have to be the credible expert. Like you can 
share all the research and all the ideas you want, but if people don't know you authentically and understand your connection, then um, I feel like it would just be a miss. So that I loved that I had that coaching. I think that for our group of 11, um, wow, that really came through for everyone. Don't you think? Yeah, yeah, I think, yeah, there were some amazing stories from all of the speakers that uh, were on stage. And yeah, I, I totally agree that the story is really crucial because that's where that's where you're able to really, I don't want to say manipulate, but that's where you're able to synergize people's thoughts by using, you know, the emotions in your story, right? And Right. So that's yes, really and important. I was just going to touch on visuals because you used an impression impressive amount of visuals mm. like I narrowed mine down I think I struggled with that almost the, the most um, I ended up narrowing mine down to only 10 slides and five of those were just a birthday celebration that I decided highlighted the essence of the idea and I was just like you know what I think I'm going to be successful if I'm not clicking too much. Like for me, I just, it just, um, that evolved. I thought that was one of the most challenging pieces. Cause you had, I had the talk written and then it was like, oh yeah, everyone does visuals. Like what? Right. No, they don't. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, good point. Yeah. I think it, yeah, it will, it ultimately the, the, your style, your personal style as a person, whether you mm. are a speaker or not, whether you are a visual learner or maybe, uh, an, an auditory learner or whatever your style is, I think that you letting that shine through what you end up doing, I think for me was helpful in that it allowed me to say, okay, I can complement what I'm saying with an image and then I can I can get some of the emotion from the image and then kind of accompany it or tie it to a story or a word or phrase or expression and that would actually really make it shine. So that that's my style. So that worked well for yes. me. I think that's a hugely important point because I listened to many other TED Talks and I was enamored with the ones that were humorous or could make people mm. laugh. And ultimately, I can't really remember jokes very well. I mean, I, I I appreciate humor, but I tend to be in the subject matter, you know, was a little bit more serious for mine. So that is the lovely thing about all these presenters. I think of the animation in some of the speakers and the movement and Mine was maybe more professional, but you know what? That's that's like, you know, 30 years of corporate America and entrepreneurship ingrained in me. That's hard to shake. You know, we had an artist that presented and like just all the different personality styles um, that came through authentically. There's no one right way to do it. So I would encourage people not to be put off by the idea that you have to be a public speaking professional. Professional. Um, you have to have a story and you have to have a passion and you have to be able to connect to people. Now, I heard you earlier say, you know, memorizing your speech, you didn't want to memorize too early. The I know there are different approaches to to memorizing or to knowing, learning your speech. Why did you go the path of memorization versus uh, some other path? Um, I honestly didn't really know what was going to be an effective way. I was actually kind of terrified when I looked at, you know, my 17 some minutes, I think it was 1800 words and like every single word in the actual delivery was pretty spot on. I think maybe I missed one or two words, which is pretty incredible. So when you think about um, the idea of memorization, going about that and building on that, 
I think I took a lot of ideas from other TEDx speakers in terms of um, recording yourself, listening back to it. Like there's, instead of just uh, walking around, you know, your, your room and presenting it. Um, I really focused on the words first and I didn't add the presentation style, which is the movement we talked about um, until like really the last week. I had one person, you know, that just come in, came in and then watched my movement. So I really wanted to focus on just the memorization. And that was a good, that was a good month of like daily. And every speaker I talked with, like every free moment you have, you start your talk, you're in your car and you get to minute 12 and then you pick it up. I mean, it's just, it was so ingrained in the daily life for a month. And I think that's what it takes. I can't imagine not, um, being as engaged with that because you 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 memorize the intonation of your voice, mm. the cadence. I mean, it's not just the words. And then what my coach at the very end who was helping me with my movements, when she saw the change from the week before to the actual talk, she was like, oh my gosh, like you you poured your emotions into that talk on the stage. Very, you know, versus a week ago, you still were kind of just going through it. I'm like, oh yeah, I knew that would come, but there's nothing like being on that stage in front of an audience. And I think we should talk briefly about that because I want to hear your experience when you stepped on the carpet. Yeah, no, I agree with <laughs> yeah, I absolutely agree. I think for me it was I had to to know the speech first and be comfortable with what I was going to deliver on stage first before mm -hmm. going into, not to say theatrics, but going into adding the nonverbals, right? Because we all know that communication is more than just this, the spoken part of it. It's more, it's the nonverbals and it's the, yeah. it's the gestures, the movements and, and the pauses and you know, where you choose to stop versus speed up versus slow down, right? And then it, it, it's essentially you are conducting an orchestra, if I may use that analogy. And at first, musicians have to get the notes down first right what is, what is it that we are going to to share once they get it down then you know you you start going into you know at this point we're going to bring in the violins versus the you know the 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 flutes or whatever right yeah for me it was you're right every moment of my of my life leading up to my <laughs> to my to the speech uh, to d-day yeah, in the car, I was I, I taped myself and I listened to my own <laughs> voice and then tried to just nail the speech down, then add it the the nonverbals and the emotions afterwards. Right. So yes, that's a very good point. So. For sure, my my kids were both mimicking me. You know, they knew the the first part of my speech over and over, and I'm just like, I'm sorry, family, this is just what it's gonna be. <laughs> yeah, so fun. Yeah, definitely. Right. So. Now, the other piece I wanted us to touch on, we talked about that, you know, so you know your speech, you, you, you go on stage and then you deliver on D-Day. What is it like to actually on the day that you're supposed to give your talk? What's happening? Uh, how are you feeling? And what, uh, can you talk a little bit about that and how that felt for you? Yeah, I think um, the day before, the whole week prior, I set my schedule up to have as much downtime as I could because in reality, if you've prepped well for it, there shouldn't be any last minute scrambling. So it was really this confidence piece of it, knowing that you've done 
your very best to get yourself to that point after 10 months, you know, and taking some time for self-care, doing the things that are going to make sure you're well-rested. Also understanding that anxiety just comes with it. It's part of the territory. So not hitting the panic button when those moments come in, but just moving through it being like, yeah, I am feeling that. And in movement, incorporating a lot of movement that week, um, And then I think, you know, the day before I was probably my most anxious. And then the day of, I, I don't know, I woke up with just a more of um, a grounded feeling and a readiness that, you know, I think most speakers, it's hard to anticipate how you're going to feel, but that was so welcoming. And I really just leaned into the energy of the fellow speakers when I arrived and, we did, you know, some movement, some dance, and just, you know, we're very um, taking up space and practicing moving, and that felt really good. And just before I went on to stage, Ross, a fellow speaker, said, you know what, I had this moment of clarity when I stepped on the red carpet. And he's like, I, I feel that you will have that as well. So all of, I, I totally felt that, and it was a little bit unexpected. I chose to lean into what he said and it really felt amazing. And I think with a live audience, I don't know how you could recreate that. I know some TEDx, you know, through COVID had to do it virtually. And I just thought it was pretty amazing to have an audience and have that energy because that's the whole point is putting your idea out into the world and getting a response. Yeah, no, I think that's that's important. Uh, having that feedback from the audience and being able to deliver it live is very, very mm-hmm. much different than than I've given some virtual speeches before. And it's very different because it's hard to to get that feedback. You know, you see those squares on on a on a virtual call, but it's really not the same because you're still having you know it's not the same. It's not the same energy. Now, for someone who's listening and who may be thinking. Okay, well, I don't have any speaking experience. You know, how where do I start, right? How do I go from from zero to 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 getting on a TEDx stage? What are some of the things that maybe people can do to work yeah. up to the courage to do that? Yeah, I think there are probably a lot of opportunities just within the groups that you're a part of. Um, like I said, I was doing putting together some panels and having some conversations, and actually. You know, the virtual meetings on Zoom created a whole nother level of needing to figure out how to engage with people in a non-personal setting. So you have to be, you know, animated on a virtual setting. You have to engage in different ways. So I think it would be interesting for people to think about not just disqualify themselves because they haven't been at a podium speaking to a large group, but to think about where you've had those moments of being engaged when you're sharing an idea. Could be in a boardroom, could be one-on-one and lean into some of that and try to do it on a smaller scale first to kind of test out what that feels like and build that confidence. I mean, I think that is something that I had been doing, not with the goal of being, you know, on the TEDx stage, but when I think back to my readiness for this, it absolutely was a trust that, oh, I've had those some similar experiences before. So just you know, and you probably have a lot of resources as well as to how to do that. I mean, Chamber of Commerce is like all sorts of platforms where you can share your ideas and thoughts in five minutes and just work up to that that muscle of like engaging with people. Yeah, yeah, I think and, and I think something you said earlier, which is I, I found to be true, which is 
being nervous is normal. You will always have some nerves before you go on any stage, whether it's five people or you know, 1,500 people. You should get nervous because you're about to do something that's out of your comfort zone. And we all have our go-to exercise or breathing exercise that we do. And for me, it's, you know, sometimes I'll do jumping jacks, right? Yes. That nervousness. And sometimes, yeah, to your point, you get on stage, you just take a breath. I, when I was in college, I took a, a storytelling class and she mandated for us to go on stage stand and just not say a word for five, 10 seconds. Awkward. Yeah. And those were, for a lot of people, the longest 10 seconds of their lives because a lot of people can't, don't want to deal with the fact that I'm standing here, people are staring at me and I'm not saying anything. It's weird. But actually, it has a calming effect, at least on me, to actually settle down, you know, slow down your breathing and just focus on what you're about to do and what you're about to say. And once you start talking the first 10 seconds, then you should be good to go. You, you realize that, you you know, your message is important enough to share. Yes. It's not about you. It's about your message and how it can help someone, even if it's one person mm-hmm. in the audience. So, yeah. yeah, absolutely. I fully leaned into that. <laughs> I want to wrap things up. But before I do, is there anything that you, you wanted to, additionally that you want to share in terms of whether someone uh, who wants to get on the TED stage or just what are some of the things that they should do or anything you want to share really to, to wrap up? Yeah. I mean, I think just the idea of leaning into what lived experiences you have and what is important to you. And like the research almost in my talk came secondarily. Like I knew I could go find research to back up some of my thoughts and ideas and Um, I just, I don't know. I think it's a great experience to put yourself out there. It's also free. As far as I know, I mean, ours was a free application process. We didn't need to pay um, to do it. So it was kind of like, you know, what do you have to lose? Um, And if anything, you know, structuring it and going for it. I've talked to one speaker who had submitted up to like eight different times at eight different TEDx events around the country um, because you never know when the timing is right. So that I would also encourage to be thinking about. It's not a one and done. Like if you're not accepted to one, there are so many around the country that are oftentimes open no matter where you live. So be thinking about it. Like, you know, you're setting that goal and it's not only like one shot, you can keep evolving and maybe you learn a lot the first time you go through it and your message changes and it hits just that right note in 2024, you know, just to be open to that because I do think it's um, an incredible group of people to be surrounded with and um, such a cool thing. I mean, who knows what the future, our talks aren't even out there, but when they are, oh my gosh, it's going to be fun. It'll be an exciting ride. Yeah, definitely. I think one thing I really enjoyed about our our group of speakers was the fact that we got together before the talks and after the talks to kind of just help each other and, and learn mm. more about each other and sharpen our, our our speeches. And that was really rewarding because we made essentially, you know, 12, 15 new friends through yes. that process, right? Yeah. And, and, a, and a huge credit to you for seeing that opportunity and being able to organize our group. Yeah, yeah. So well, thank it was, you. It was my yeah. pleasure. Uh, yeah, and I think uh, it's important to, your, to what you said, it's important to lead, if you want to give a talk, lead with your story. It's about your mm. story you know, the unique, unique spin that you can add to it, right? And uh, 
So that's an important thing to remember. And if you lead with your story and with passion, then you, mm-hmm. you should be okay. It's it's really not, they're not looking for expert speakers. They're looking yes. for someone who has that's something. That's right. Yeah, really. So That's right. We need more representation for all ideas that we haven't seen before. So this is the perfect platform for that. I know I'm willing to talk with anyone who has questions about it. I published a blog post that's all about the process that we just talked about. So you can find that at jengilhoy.com, J-E-N-G-I-L-H-O-I.com. Awesome. I will add that to the show notes. And uh, and when our talks come out, I will make sure to to link to it, <laughs> to to the YouTube video and make sure that yes. uh, under the show notes of this episode. Uh, any final thoughts, uh, Jen, before we wrap up? No, just looking forward to seeing the talks out in the world and inspiring more people to figure out what their passions are and put their ideas into the world, right? Absolutely. And and how can people get a hold of you if they want to get in touch? Yeah, so I would say Instagram, Jen Gilhoy, and then also launched, uh, based on my TED Talk, an Instagram handle that's called Sober Not Somber with a little underscore at the end. So that's where I'm going to be moving all the content related to this movement. Um, I'm going to be kind of funneling it under that IG channel and then LinkedIn, of course, at Jen Gilhoy. So yeah, thank you so much for this opportunity. It's been amazing to chat with you. Yeah, my pleasure. That was my interview with Jen Gilhoy. If you took something out of this interview, feel free to reach out to her and certainly to the podcast. Ultimately, it comes down to one truth, which is that we all have struggles, but they don't have to define us or even limit us. Your struggles may reshape how you see the world, but more importantly, what you do with the lessons from those struggles to better yourself is going to make the biggest difference. You don't have to go and change the world. No, you don't have to do that. That's asking way too much of you or of anyone for that matter, but you owe it to yourself to improve your life using those lessons, even if you only get 1% better today than you were yesterday. 1%, that's all. So what's your struggle? What lessons can you learn from those struggles? What's the silver lining and how can you help yourself from those lessons and from those silver linings? That's your homework today. That's your takeaway asking those questions, but most importantly, answering those questions and taking baby steps to be a slightly better version of yourself. I believe in you and I believe that you can do that. You can find the show notes for today's episode on my website at umarjang.com forward slash session 52. That's session 52. By the way, if you enjoyed listening to the podcast, grab your phone right now rate the show and drop us a comment and let us know how we're doing. Let us know that you are getting value out of this. It only takes a few moments and rating the show helps the podcast get noticed and helps others discover the show and learn from the information that I share. God knows we can use some uplifting content. Thank you for doing that and thank you for spending part of your day with me today. I really appreciate you. Until next time, please stay safe and motivated. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to the Motivational Voice Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and rate it on iTunes. Get show notes and the latest blog post at omarjang.com.